You're listening to Two Beers Until Phrenesis, a philosophy podcast for students, graduates, and anyone else interested in ideas. In this side series, we explore the history of philosophy and its most notable thinkers, from Socrates to Nietzsche, covering all the big ideas from the ground up. Enjoy! Socrates! Okay, so I'm going to give a brief overview and just go through basically a quick catch-up session of Socrates and who he is and the basic board post, and then we're just going to launch into a discussion um, and just kind of go through who this bloke was, why he was pretty cool, um, and all the rest of it. That sounds really good. So, basically, Socrates was a philosopher that sort of was around mostly during the sort of golden era of Greek um, civilization, what the Athenian civilization. Um, he was born in Athens in around 469 BC um, and died around 399 BC. He lived during like the Peloponnesian War, which I didn't say right. He lived during the Peloponnesian War, which basically put Athens into quite an unstable state. He's considered sort of like the father of dialectic, and um, he was one of the first, well, considered one of the first ever moral philosophers. Um, he was. A I think it's not too much of a stretch to say he's the first philosopher, but well, I mean, we get into that later. But yeah, I, I would say pretty much he, before the because obviously we just did the episode on the Pre-Socratics. I think he's. I think he's the first philosopher in a real sense of the word, in the way we think about the word now. Right. But yeah. And we have, you know, he taught Plato, he had many students. A lot of the people as well were in the ancient Athens regarded him as the philosopher. They would actually refer to him as that. So he, he had this, like, status as, like, the sort of one and only. Hmm. Yeah, and, like, as I alluded to earlier, he, he was then executed, actually, by the state. So he was executed by the Athenian state at the time, and that's how he sort of died. And we'll get into why that was and what sort of led to that. And, um, you know, he was just sort of known as a guy with a wicked intellect, one of the first philosophers, etc., um, is there anything else you want to sort of add to that brief overview of who this guy is before we... Yeah, well, there's a few few things, yeah. So uh, the fact that we don't really know anything about him is like a main a main thing I really want to bring up. Um, I think that's just that, that's like such a big, important aspect of talking about Socrates is that we know nothing really about it because he never wrote anything down. And obviously we'll get into the reasons why. Um, but it's it's interesting to note that most of the accounts we have from him are from Plato, and Plato's obviously got this massively biased view. And then uh, you've got... Xenophon. Uh, yeah, Xenophon. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, fucking Aristophanes, the guy who wrote the Clouds play that right. lampooned him. But yeah, so it, it's important to kind of know that he's got this like really controversial kind of... Uh, people. Yeah, people don't know what to make of him. Yeah. Historically speaking, is, this is what's called the Socratic problem. So, you know, and, and to sort of launch in the first state of discussion, I suppose the historical... Um, I, you know, the historical background behind Socrates is fairly, you know, uh, loose and a bit ambiguous in the sense that we have multiple secondary sources. There is no, he didn't write anything, he didn't uh, put anything down. And the trouble is that the sources can differ on what about the same sort of events in Socrates' life and the same aspects of his character. You know, for instance, like Xenophon might have a slightly different idea of who Xenophon was. Also, a student of Socrates, who was also a, um, uh, he was like a mercenary and he was like, you know, a famous sort of commander in uh, the Athenian army and. Um, and he wrote a lot about Socrates and his life and his death and things like that. Um, and him and Plato are probably the two biggest sources. And obviously uh, philosophers like Aristotle, um, who was taught by Plato, wrote a bit about Socrates. You have people like Aristophanes as well, who um, wrote comic plays. They're more caricatures of him. That's yeah, so, so Aristophanes wrote a play called The Clouds. 
And basically, it's just lampooning Socrates for being a dirty cunt, basically. He's just, they're just like, oh, this guy is disgusting. You're just walking around in his bare feet, going up to people in the marketplace, bothering people, asking them weird questions like, what is virtue? Or like, what is justice? Or what is moral goodness? Right. And so that's a lot of what made his character infamous, is he would just wander around the marketplace... Um, and he would he would claim to sort of not really know anything, but he would constantly try to engage in dialectic with people and sort of ground down what they believe and go, well, why do you believe that? Well, if you believe this and you believe this, well, why do you believe this? And force them to sort of either a contradiction or to redefine what some of their foundational beliefs were. Um, hence, you know, being sort of the father of this sort of critical technique and this, this I think, was now the Socratic method, if you like, to question down to the sort of axioms of what someone believes. Yeah, and one way to think about that is, so... I think he kind of stands out from the nationalism of the time because a lot of the time he's confronting generals about ideas of justice. Because I think the, the, the Delphic Oracle told him that the he's the wisest person in the world. But he was like, oh, that's that can't be true. In fact, he didn't go out to seek this information. Yeah. I think his students went out on his it was, behalf. It was one of his friends who went out to, it was, it was the, uh, her name was Pythia. She was like the oracle in yeah, Delphi, which was, at the time, Delphi was sort of like considered like the centre of the world. It was like this great holy place. Mm. And, his, and he sent his mate out because he was too lazy to go out. He just like sent his mate out to go ask the oracle about him and all that sort of thing. Well, I, was it, was um, it, did he send someone on his behalf or did they take it? I think did he sent take it, behalf, all right. I think. Um, I'm not, I'd have to, I'm not, I'd have to double check, but I'm pretty sure, yeah, he, he was actually interested in what the oracle wanted to say because he wasn't that he wasn't that bothered about leaving Athens ever. Obviously, he did leave Athens because he was a he was a, um, a soldier in the Peloponnesian War, right. and he was a he was a hoplite, he was a geezer with a spear, yeah, and he used to fight people. But I think he was a stonemason as well. But like generally, he just didn't care about any of that kind of stuff. He just wants to to walk around in rags and just annoy people. Is the yeah, general sense? He was sense. always very poor. He didn't acquire any wealth. He just kind of like lived a very humble life if you like um in a sort of very deliberate way um it sounds quite attractive but then you hear him say things like well you should you should all be paying me for teaching you about virtue and it it gets to the point of like because i I used to think regard socrates as kind of a hero in this in this sense especially when i got into philosophy and then after about a year of studying i was like this guy's a bit of a prick, actually. Yeah, although this, the problem is, and to go back to the Socratic problem and the problem with the sources, is like that sort of version of Socrates was a platonic version of Socrates, the Plato's sort of idea of him as being, you know, perhaps a little bit more parsimonious, a little bit more extreme than maybe he was. And you and you might, um, you know, people like Xenophon probably emphasise more him as, as this person with ultra discipline and ultra sort of you know virtue and like he wouldn't budge or anything he was incredibly tolerant of pain he would walk around in the snow without any shoes on and that sort of thing and yes um, and you sort of have slightly different conceptions of the guy so it's like as as to whether that's as much of an exaggeration whether he you know was as extreme as he was or whether it was just he was a bit annoying and sort of went around questioning people you know it's, it's hard to exactly say i think yeah I, I think every historian pretty much agrees that he's unique and he seems to have been at the very least, like a really eccentric character. And my take on the Socratic question is, um, I know you corrected me the other day <laughs> by saying it was like a burden of proof. Um, I, yeah, it's more, more like Occam's razor. It's like this idea that, well, a lot of pe- a lot of the sources do seem to tolerate. Uh, there are correlations between right. some of the sources, right. I mean, the two big correlations, funnily enough, is that he was ugly, <laughs> at least later on in his life, and he Bold. was also really, really clever. And like those are the only two things that we can say for sure that this this guy kind of existed, and he was ugly, and he was really smart. Um, and there's obviously that's lots of correlations um, 
I'm on top of that. But yeah, other than that, you can kind of really sort of pick apart his character depending on who you're reading. Mm. Yeah. Um, so what else do we kind of roughly know about Socrates in terms of his character? Like, well, what, what well, to sort of continue of on, on that story with the oracle and everything. So he, so he sent his mate to this this oracle. And this oracle went, yeah, like like you said, he just goes, well, Socrates is the wisest of them all, basically, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. And, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, this. so his mate goes back to Socrates, goes, yeah, so she was like, yeah, mate, you're like, well, clever and all that. And he's like, yeah, but that can't be right, because if I, I'm sure that there's someone else out there who must be wise. His head is as big as... He's, he's like, his ego is swelling at this point. He's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, no, that, that's not true. I'm not the clever... He fucking... He thought he was yeah. the cleverest. Right, and it's sort of like, you know, and obviously depending on who you... Because I think it was Xenophon's is the source of this story of the of the Oracle story. Yeah, um, so so he, he sets out then to basically go up to generals and statesmen and basically say... Yo, you guys are really wise. You must know what justice is because you're a you're a statesman. You have to know what justice is. And then he'll like frame their ideas in such a way, put words in their mouth, and just ba- basically just ask them why, 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 like a child, until that they can't they, they they just can't break it down anymore. To be fair, I would say there is a bit more to it in the sense that he would often try to get them to agree with propositions. For example, so he goes, so why? What is your conception of justice? So what? How would you describe justice? And then he would get them to eventually contradict their original description. Of Which is very said. easy to do, though, because it's like right. most people don't think about it to this degree, and that that's kind of why I think uh, he's he's this great. Uh, uh, kind of poster boy for philosophy because he, he really does want to get down to the the fundamentals of a question. But then, yeah, at the same time, I, I, I can see why that would have been annoying in ancient Greece. Yeah, and not only that, but it, like I think a lot of aspects of his character as well, I think are very appealing. At least, you know, he, he'd go to the death believing what he believed. He would rather die than stop doing his, you know, his critical approach and questioning people. Um, and... Yeah, he, he believed basically that he knew nothing um, after a while. So he was, you know, he, so getting this news that, oh, you're the wisest of them all, he was like, well, that can't be right because I think that I know nothing, or at least I, I believe that um, the reality is that I'm, you know, the wisest thing to realise is that I am, you know, I don't have perfect knowledge of everything. And, you know, and this sort of goes into one of his first sort of aspects of his philosophy, which was that um, with knowledge, you can gain better understanding of virtue. And it's with virtue, with understanding exactly what the perfect virtue is is um, is how you gain happiness so he would think well virtue is the road to happiness but the road to virtue is knowledge so it's like knowledge is a virtue in a sense because you're you know you, you to figure out um how to be as virtuous as possible requires knowledge that's one of his sort of foundational beliefs was this idea that yeah knowledge equals virtue equals happiness but he also thought things like this kind of cave of ignorance idea that um that you know everyone did sit in this sort of cave of ignorance if you like and we all need to sort of be aware of that yeah so i mean that's obviously something that plato then took upon later in in the the republic this whole this whole cave idea and i think he yeah it, it's hard to say where the exaggerations end and the 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 real historicity of the situation kind of continues because because you have this problem with uh with some of the the platonic writings so plato his student writes later uh, about Socrates, and he, I think really it was the death of Socrates that moved Plato to write in such a way about Socrates, so as not just to kind of continue his legacy, but to kind of to kind of venerate his death, to kind of get back at the people who killed him through give right. justice. Yeah, yeah. and um, the early dialogues of Plato, it, it's like Socrates is pretty much. He's less exaggerated, so it's probably more likely that this is what Socrates was like. 
And then in the later dialogues, he's basically just espousing Plato's own ideas. But I think it's important to know that pe people, people would have known who Socrates was when Plato was releasing all these books. You know, they'd have popped down to Waterstones, they'd have opened it up and gone like, oh, that's, that's Socrates. Like, why, why is Plato, you know, if, if it hadn't been how Socrates had been, they wouldn't have been like, oh, why is Plato writing about Socrates in a way that just Socrates wasn't like? Aquastonus. Yeah, just completely. <laughs> is, that, is that the ancient That's Greek? ancient water stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what stone is in ancient Greek. You just say just a stonus, yeah. <laughs> Aquastonus. Yeah, but, so, yeah, you're, you're right there. So, like, that's a weird thing about if you, you know, using Plato. Plato is probably the most accepted source for Socrates in his life and what he was like. Unfortunately, the way Socrates, sort of, his character does change. And also, um, you know, writings like the Symposium, are fictions and you know most of what Plato writes are fictions which has the character of Socrates in them you know he's not necessarily always literally writing about Socrates a lot of it is just Socrates representing a certain um, you know character or position in an argument and like you said the middle to late Plato Socrates would take on all sorts of ideas like for instance like the form so like one of Plato's famous ideas which we won't go into now we'll go into the Plato episodes Socrates begins espousing these ideas in middle to late Plato but the problem is Early Socrates and a lot of the other sources of Plato as well, but he didn't really, you know, he he occupied essentially this position of doubt. So the idea that he would be comfortable with saying, well, the forms is the most truthful way to think is, is you know, is very questionable. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, a lot of people sort of doubt that this middle to late um, Plato writing version of Socrates is necessarily very historically accurate. Like you said, probably just there as a caricature for um, Plato to express a lot of his ideas. And also bearing in mind, you know, Plato was um, 24, I believe, when Socrates was executed. Let's get a bit of detail on the trial, actually. Yeah, then we can um, move on to like some of Socrates' philosophy yeah. and stuff. And Yeah. So, um... He was put to he's put to death for corrupting the youth of Athens and sort of introducing other gods that weren't their gods. Right. And I think that's that's largely the context you have to see this in is the fact that it was kind of a tumultuous time for Athens because they'd just been through the war. It was right. kind of hard time. So it, was, it was about three or four years in the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War. Mm. Um, that yeah, Athens was in a real state because they just lost they just lost this war right. Um, they were so terrified of corruption, so terrified of all these sort of things. He would essentially be. He was accused, and this was still a de you know this was still a trial with uh, you know you had jurors. It was like five hundred jurors um, of of random. Yeah, this citizens. was this really was democracy in the well at least in the ancient Athenian yeah. context at work. Relatively democratic, you know. Yeah. Um, but he was accused essentially of, and it was only it was only three. It was three people accusing him. Um, I think only really one of which we know much about. It's just generals really pissed uh, off yeah. because he humiliated them in the marketplace, basically. Right, and I think a lot of people were a bit pissed off at Socrates for this very reason that he was being a bit of an arse. He was just like, and, and I think these these three generals in particular, I think one of them he had sort of like, as he would put it, corrupted his son. He you know sort of taken him on his wing, and you know, his son went around sort of doubting everything, if you like. Um, so he was pissed off about that. He was obviously pissed off about how he sort of undermined a lot of these politicians and would sort of, you know, um, say, well, you know, you don't know, you don't know the absolute truth. And that he was, yeah, he was accused, one, of sort of like impiety, which is, you know, say, um, just denouncing the gods and all that sort of thing. He was accused of also corrupting the youth. So he was accused of uh, going on the streets and talking to random young people and going, hey, you know, 
take I'll take you under my wing and teach you all about doubt and you know and this sort of Socratic whatever. Although you wouldn't have put it like that, but you just said like, yeah, you know nothing, mate, and you know, and that would have been his <laughs> sort of foundation of his teachings. Um, and yes, and people like Alcibiades was also a student of Socrates. So, and Alcibiades was a bit of an infamous uh, figure in sort of ancient Athens. He lost, he lost a war in in Sicily, and he sort of, um, although you know, some historians might contest, well, he wouldn't have lost it if he was actually commanded. Blah 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 blah. blah. Basically, he he was like this guy who basically he he'd gone to Persia, he'd gone to Sparta, and fought for Persia and Sparta, and all the all these places. He was a bit of he was a deceptive character. People didn't like him, and he was also you know and that was another argument about like, well, Alcibiades was sort of your spawn. If you like, you know, you're a product of you. Um, and so that was, you know, level... He was also associated with pre-Socratic philosophers like Anaxagoras, who we mentioned in the in the pre-Socratics episode, um, you know, and sort of mocks this idea that, you know, so Anaxagoras believed that the sun is like a... is a giant ball of fire in the sky. God, what an idiot. We all know it's the gods. The, the, and so, you yeah, know, and obviously uh, uh, Socrates was associated with Anaxagoras, and so that sort of impiety, again, by association... Um, and Pythagoras as well. He was also sort of associated with that sort of like sophistic uh, tradition in a way. And like, you know, obviously it's the weird thing is a lot of like, you know, Plato and Aristotle actually hate sophists or hate that sophistic tradition of... Um, I, I think sophism really uh, is, is kind of like the manifestation of of this form of democracy that Plato wants to kind of uh, tackle in using the character of Socrates and kind of uh, giving justice to the character of Socrates because obviously the sophists are just like lawyers. They just go around basically winning arguments for people. Basically, if you want your kid to be a statesman, you send him to the sophists, you teach him how to argue and sophists will argue any position. They're just like rent-a-gobs. They're like mm. Katie Hopkins in, in, <laughs> in ancient Athens. And um, I yeah, I, I kind of think that it's, it's that moral relativism of these sophists that mm. Socrates really stands against yeah but, but this is the thing and he was associated with a lot of them of, of course like he didn't mm. like this idea so maybe a bit of guilt by association there was this idea of he was corrupting the youth and that, that he was impious and those were the three that are not ba- but more or less the main reasons were some people took it really personally there was probably a lot of people who pissed off and it ended up in the trial with 500 jurors um and yeah this became known as the, the trial of Socrates. yeah and then he starts like i mean it's a nominal charge i think i think they just want to get rid of him for any reason i think that's the historical consensus i think I think they're just using this charge of impiety and everything because they're just pissed off with him. And I think the, the guy's like 74 at this point, which is really old for you know, ancient Athenian society. And like, instead of trying to argue his case or going, oh yeah, I'm sorry, which is, I think a lot of historians have argued might have actually got him off. He had a very, he had a quite a good chance. No, he, he had a very good chance of getting yeah. off. But this, the problem is also we have conflicting sources again. Yeah. So we have um, Xenophon, again, like a student Socrates, who was a book warrior, blah, 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 who sort of wrote afterwards, well, Socrates, I mean, I think I think he, Xenophon actually wrote that he didn't say anything, or he didn't mount any defence, whereas you've got Plato sort of saying that he mounted this great defence, this great sort of origin. And you, it's difficult to say whether, like, you know, maybe Plato put words in his mouth, maybe, you know, maybe a lot of it is dramatised. But either way, it's like the, you know, the legacy or the idea of the Socrates defence and the fact that he was sort of principled to the end, I think, you know, it's what sort of lives on and what sort of became, you know, um, the sort of known history of him, I guess, however accurate that was. Even before the trial happened, so he had a chance, because they actually, you know, there was a delay between him being prosecuted and him actually going to trial. And in that time, he could have perfectly easily escaped or left Athens with, you know, his friends could have helped him out of Athens easily. But he, and um, what's really interesting is he sort of, you know, he went and consulted 
I think it's called a diamond, uh, Greek equivalent of your soul or yourself. It's not really like the soul because the soul sort of changed with um, the definition when Christianity sort of came in. Our definition of the soul kind of changed religiously, but yeah, it's a, not. It's yeah. not that metaphysical. It's more yeah, like it's, a self, if you yeah. like. Um, and, and and Socrates believed that, um, and he sort of consulted with him, himself, his conscience, if you like, and he went well. Um, and you know, Xenophon will say, well, one of the big things that he would um, never do is never go against his conscience. Um, and he, and his conscience told him, don't run away. And he and he said, "Well, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick around. I'm just gonna face the trial. I, I know that I should probably run away if I had a chance to live. But like you said, maybe there was rational reasons. Like, oh, well, I'm old yeah. and I don't have any money, and I probably yeah. So he's he's seventy. He's like seventy odd. So yeah. that's going to be a big factor in why he wouldn't want to choose exile because I think exile was like pretty much on the cards um, because a lot of the students also because once the sentence was passed, he had to drink hemlock." Uh, and commit suicide in that way he was forced to Um, but his students were like we can sort of break you out here and you know let you loose and I think there's several reasons maybe why he didn't and I think part of it is um, he just he's old he just didn't want to Um, yeah it wouldn't he he would have or he would have uh, had these principles and carried them on to the next town and they would have annoyed him as as much as one of the you know he would he would have carried on annoying people and probably had the same sentence there and you know, ancient ancient Athens was probably the best place he was going to get away with this. If he couldn't get away with it in Athens, he couldn't get away with it anywhere. Yeah, and That's... he lucked out many times. In fact, it was uh, the vote wasn't even that. Uh, you know, it was quite a close vote. It was something. It was you know, five hundred jurors. I believe the difference was about thirty votes. Oh really? Um, between him being guilty or being completely acquitted. Um, but probably what built the difference is during the trial, part of his defence. So back in ancient Athens, you could basically you you know you'd make your defence, you'd make your thing, and he, he makes his grand speech. We might go into a minute. Um, and then afterwards, uh, you know, the vote was cast, and it wasn't it wasn't that you know it was a fairly it was fairly close, maybe you know thirty votes difference. Um, and then you have the option democratically to give another. Uh, way that you could give another punishment so he, he could say well i i think a more fair punishment would be a fine or i think um and at f- and yeah sources kind of from this again but like essentially you know the famous thing that he sort of says is well my punishment should be that i should get free meals <laughs> from you guys because <laughs> you know I, i've been doing you a service so he's uh. just been he's just been like convicted he's you know his his sent you know everyone wants to kill him and he's been given the fight, another chance to like go. Well, I think this is more, you know, maybe exile, maybe you know, another chance to say or oh, exile. I think, and, or a massive final, excellent fine. And he just goes, "Now I've done you a service. You should be paying me." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, yeah, and obviously after that, the vote was quite unanimous for him to be put to death. And then, um, yeah, and like I mean, back in those days, they did. They were still crucifying people, so that was crucifixion was actually a very common form of execution. So um, he was actually quite lucky to have the the whole hemlock situation. Um, yeah, I mean, and one of the re- one of the other reasons maybe why he chose that is because he has a belief in democracy or the state. So he wants to say that, well, if this is what the people have decided, then I'll go for it, hmm. and that that could be another factor. I mean, yeah, I I don't know. Really. It said as part of his speech, yeah, he sort of said, "Well, I'm not worried by this because you know I will, I will be going to death by the state because I I'm born in this society that obeys the laws of the society and you know and that sort of thing and I, I believe in upholding those." As you can sort of tell just from this, like he was quite the character and he was really sort of like wouldn't sort of change on his principles or his beliefs just you know even when it came to sort of the end. But yeah, at the same time, you, there were rational reasons as well why it might have been a good time for him to go out and a good time for him to leave you know it's not necessarily that um it was entirely this just you know 
completely bleak situation for him, considering his age and everything. And also during his trial, and this is you know the point thing when he's mounting his defence, obviously um, one of the accusers um, sort of you know will sort of say, well, you've been doing all this, and he sort of he would come up and part of his defence, he would just totally you know destroy this guy in a, in his in the debate, you know totally you know outplay him with rhetoric and whatever, and it was you know he sort of make almost make fun of them and be just totally brutal in his uh, um, in in how he dealt with these accusations levelled against him and everything, which probably, you know, um, would have helped him with the vote and everything. But Yeah, I don't think he was... I don't, I don't believe he was half as witty as uh, what Plato wants to make out. Yeah. So the ideas of Socrates and what the sort of philosophies were that at least he was attributed with by some people... Um, I think one of the most important is this idea of the the Socratic method, just to get a sense of the kinds of conversations he's having. So what exactly the the Socratic method is, is basically just um, questioning people, getting right down to the fundamentals. You'd say, like, what is virtue? Is it teachable? These kinds of questions. And really get people to think about the kinds of beliefs they were holding. And to the point where they'd be like, oh, I'd never even thought about... The, you know the idea of good or something and uh obviously famously in like things like the republic his interlocutors get like really angry i just think you would really if someone's coming up to you going hey what is virtue is it teachable you'd be like go away i'm trying to, i'm trying to like yeah. buy stuff down the agora like go away right. but he was very like you said virtue focused i mean he believed that committing injustice was far worse than actually suffering an injustice so, you know, if you were, say, suffering some, like, false conviction or something or something, you know, where people are beating you for whatever, no real reason, um, he thinks that's a less worse fate for you than, say, you actually committing that very injustice. And he thinks that because um, it's all about maintaining, you know, a good soul. I'm using that word again, but it's not strictly the word that they would sort of use, your, your daemon, your whatever they call it. Yeah. Your soul would get corrupted by the, the act of committing this injustice, and thus it is. You know, he would say, "Well, if these people are committing injustice to me, um, I may feel bad about it, but at least it's not corrupting my soul." And I, you know, they are they are going to be worse off for having done that, because it's not virtuous to have done that. That was sort of like one of the foundations of his his ideas about virtue. Yeah, so he thinks that like being good is being virtuous, and he's, it, it, part of the Socratic method is because he basically wants to get to the good. It's analogous to this idea of the good, anyway. He calls it elentious, or however you say it in the correct pronunciation. But it's basically um, this. Uh, one of the the idea of um, the idea of truth, basically. But in terms of how you live your life, he basically wants to say that you should seek uh, eudaimonia. So just as a conversation to try and seek this elentious, um, a conversation, a, a life should seek. Eudaimonia. Eudaimonia is essentially flourishing. So he thinks that virtue should lead to this idea of flourishing. Right. And Which is all sort of like, yeah, flourishing, happiness, this kind of idea of like the, the ultimate goal for where you want to be. Yeah. Um, like I said, and, you know, uh, like I sort of alluded to earlier, the way to they figure out what this, what the good is and what, and, you know, what the ultimate virtue is and how to get there, um, he believes was through knowledge. And to gain knowledge, you have to constantly be questioning and constantly be in dialectic and constantly like engaged with people to try and figure out uh, the truth of what whatever the matter is. Um, and that's what it's, that's what he firmly believed in. He didn't believe that he knew what the good was, but he wanted to find out what it was. Yeah, and I think he has this idea that that process of finding out, so having 
a conversation um, about virtue is basically the best thing that a person can do. So that's why he gets off on it. He's always turning up at parties and symposiums and trying to get people to think about these kinds of questions. Hmm. And um, like he says, you know, he also believes that if pursuit in life is, uh, if, if what a lot of what you're doing is bad or it's not, you know, it's not in pursuit of the good or the virtue, or if you don't think that you are, per, you know, you think that you're pursuing what is good, but you're misguided, then you're going to be unhappy. And this sort of leads to one of those other ideas, which I think is a pretty cool idea, um, which is the idea that um, evil comes from ignorance, not from uh, just from ignorance of virtue. Yeah, so he thinks that those than, people that do wrong are literally just ignorant. Yeah, they don't yeah. know what they're, what that they, the re, you know, they don't know what virtue is, so they, they're not committing an evil act. Which I think is to pass the buck a little bit. Like that's a bit that's avoiding the issue, kind of. I don't know. To an extent, it's quite a modern interpretation. If you think about how you know we are kind of to a great extent a product of our environment and our biology and. You know, um, to, to how much can you blame? You know, it's, it's sort of this idea of platonic determinism, which we'll sort of get into maybe in another podcast. But, um, you know, it is an idea that's very much stuck around and uh, for a very long time, this idea that, you know, there's there's something called Hanlon's razor. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Uh, but this is uh, simply what can be attributed as ignorance should not be thought of as malice. So if someone does something awful, the f- you should give them the opportunity to assume that it was, they did that in ignorance and not out of genuine malice or, you know, not because of, you know, any kind of actual evil. Um, I, I can certainly see... Whether that's actually always the case, I don't know, and I, you mm. know, I don't necessarily think so, but, it's, but you can see how at least it's the start of that idea that, like, at least we can start thinking about people, not in terms of, you know, people just do bad things and just do good things. There's, you know, there's also this uncertainty in the mix. And, like, yeah, I can certainly see... Why that would be an attractive idea. I mean, let, trying to think of like bad things that people do, like um, people mugging people. It's like, to an extent, you, you've got to be, I don't know, you, you've got to f- feel a certain way. You've got to, like, uh, talking about Levinas the other day, and obviously it's that whole shutting off of one part of your mind to, to cause harm to another. You've got to kind of ignore so you're talking about ignorance you've got to kind of ignore the fact that they're human right um which i think is one element of it but i, I think socrates almost wants to say that you're you're just stupid to, and i yeah it, i i don't know i think i think i think there's certainly an element of truth in that idea and it's it's easy to see what yeah why he would have, he would have thought that back then um but yeah so this idea that um ignorance causes you know people people do things out of ignorance and he also wants to say that if you're not, if you're being ignorant, if you're not um, kind of thinking and being contemplative, you know, he thinks the, con- the contemplative life is the best life and he thinks the unexamined life is not worth living. So if you're a job on the street and you're not really thinking about anything, you're just going around spitting at people and being unvirtuous, he wants to say that your life's not worth living. Right. And that sort of almost ties into his, uh, one of the other, in a modern context of us being in a democracy, probably a more controversial idea. Um, that he hated democracy. I mean, he hated the idea that um, everyone could get a vote. And it was, you know, I mean, well, by everyone, I mean, you know, this is ancient Athens, so we're talking every citizen that was eligible to vote and not women. Yeah, so a not citizen, women, not a citizen slaves, you know. i.e. a certain type of man yeah, exactly. that, isn't, that isn't a slave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, but for what it was, he even then he thought, well, the only people who should be allowed to vote should have, you know, should have to contemplate it for a long time and really think and thought about why they're voting and what they're voting for and all that sort of thing. 
Um, and for that reason, he was like, well, dem- you know, democracy is bad because you've got so many ignorant people voting and whatever. I'm not sure how much of that was Socrates and how much of it was Plato. Yeah, I, I, again, it's hard to say. Yeah. It's hard to say. Exactly. I can definitely see, especially with Plato's Republic, which is a very elitist. I mean, they, they, he wants to let women be soldiers, but apart from that, it's like it's very elitist. He wants philosophers to rule, and I mean, we'll get onto Plato's Republic in the next episode. But yeah, I, I kind of feel like there are better reasons for Plato to to use Socrates in that way. Uh, I, I feel like Socrates would have been quite chill. I don't think he would have... I don't think he's... It seems like he's not the kind of guy that would have spoken down or judged people. I think that most of the judging is is inferred by getting people to, to realise that their own stupidity. Yeah. Rather than outright saying, you're stupid, he wants to show you how you're stupid. You show yourself how you're stupid. Hmm. And it's like, oh, I can see... I, yeah, yeah that, that but you can annoying. see, because, yeah, again, it's like, this is the problem, is like how much of... Uh, the sources that are sort of on the other side of the table, uh, like we mentioned, the comedies, um, sort of mocking and sort of you know him out to be this guy that's just constantly like going, well, the clouds are what causes the rain, not the gods, and th- that was a joke. Like back in those days, somebody to say the clouds were what caused the rain and not the gods. That's like you know, <laughs> like what are you on about, mate? That's ridiculous. It's the gods that bring the clouds that cause the rain. You know, mocking him for this idea that. Um, he sort of could come up with explanations for things, or, um, or that, or this, you know, slandering him as Plato would put it for being impious and all these things that did lead to potentially lead to his trial. And... It's like for him to be used as this big figure. How much? How how much can we mythologize him? How much can we make him into this? Because he, he's supposedly like. Never gets drunk and it's right, like yeah. So a lot of the play, yeah, like in the symposium, where he just like drinks like gallons of alcohol. Yeah, just like totally fine. Everyone yeah. else is fucking wankered, just right. like oh, on the floor, and he just walks out and he's like, no, I'm fine. Yeah, I kind of want to take on that idea of Socrates. Like, I feel like it's it's useful. It was very useful for me, um, learning philosophy to have, to kind of have a window into the world of philosophy. Like reading about Wittgenstein is like. I, bloke sounds like a twat like, I, I don't really want to it's like Hume I, I don't I can't relate he sounds to like a brand of vacuum cleaner doesn't he yeah <laughs> so. so I guess what I'm asking you is do you think that that's a, he's the best kind of example of this kind of thing do you think he's the the prime example of what it means to be a philosopher well, for think- better or for worse he became it in a way he sort of became mm. that cultural significant figure who brought dialectic and brought the idea of doubting oneself and constant criticism and that's sort of like, you, like like I said it's, it's a it's kind of mythical it's kind of real it's, we know that there was a Socrates almost definitely and he had certain uh, traits about him he almost definitely did certain things and was probably almost definitely put on trial and was almost but it's like you know the details of him and the details of what he believed and where is is where it you know it can get very foggy um but at the end of the day what sort of survives is the idea or at least the philosophical idea that seemed to have had its genesis with socrates and that idea being the socratic method that idea being this sort of tradition of philosophy kind of beginning or at least you know really having its roots starting with him yeah I, I, there's a there's a quote by Christopher Hitchens um goes something like I think he was talking on radio to somebody about um the historicity of Jesus whether Jesus existed or not and I think he basically says well let's not bother let's not bother talking about Jesus cuz let's let's talk about Socrates instead so he kind of offers up Socrates as like this this 
alternative to Jesus almost. Mm. And he basically says that Socrates is the, is the best because he's he's having the conversa- the only conversation worth having and he's a relevant ideal um, that it, it is worth taking inspiration from because you can it, it, he kind of has the, the moral courage to think for himself and that's just like such a powerful idea and mm. very needed in today's society yeah and uh, the fact that the, the fact that um, he existed or not doesn't really matter um, so much as it does in Christianity with Jesus and um, I remember reading that and kind of thinking yeah I mean, I don't think there's any danger of people start, starting to worship Socrates or anything like that. Um, but I think fundamentally there kind of is a bit of a contradiction if you start worshipping Socrates, and I think that's partly why it doesn't really make sense to equate uh, so why don't we just worship Socrates instead of Jesus or well, do this sort of thing, because it, it's a totally different sort of situation. I mean, we'll tell that to the Buddha, because, uh, I mean, the Buddha explicitly did not want to be worshipped. Like, before right. he was dying, he was like, mate, if you do one thing, right, just make sure nobody worships me and, and nobody like turns me into this weird thing that sticks my right. image everywhere. And but, like, do, but like Socrates almost was on on a fundamental level, his, his entire sort of history and behaviour and the way he sort of acted was, you know, sure there's ideas about virtue, but it was fundamentally founded in doubt. And it's and I, I think that you can't really found a sort of religious following around a figure who is entirely sort of the impersonification of doubt in a way and, and, and critiquing oneself. That doesn't work as a... Yeah, I think you've, you know, I, I think you've completely hit the nail on the head there because that's that was uh, when you were talking to me about humanism what the big the big problem with it the fact that it, it's got this potential to turn into a religion or something worse i the way i wanted to kind of confront that was to make it about doubt to make it about rejection of right. narratives but to but to make doubt a positive thing and i think that's what um basically pierre haddo wants to talk about it's, it's a similar kind of thing where um he, Pierre Haddo is a philosopher who writes about the genealogy of um, the way that philosophy is developed through the years. And he has a very specific idea of what philosophy is, but he, he starts with Socrates and basically ends with some of the, the existentialists. And he basically wants to say, this is what philosophy is. And it's this this type of inquiry and curiosity and doubt that he thinks can be embodied as not just something you do, but the way you are, it's your person, it's, it's a transformative practice, just going around doubting everything. So I think that's probably what I want to say about Socrates in terms of what kind of a role model he can be. And I think it's probably something I've tried to take on. I think all the philosophers, I think he's probably the one I've got uh, the most, I probably resonate with the most with. But again, it's I'm not really resonating with Socrates, I'm resonating with an idea of Socrates that I've made. And I think, yeah, part of the problem is I, I can sort of feel that as well, but part of me worries that, well, the reason why I feel this resonation is because he's sort of a bit of an empty vessel, but not in not in the strictest sense, but in the sense that he is comfortable in his doubt. It's not like, you know, when you, say, read Plato or whatever, you're like, well, I don't really agree with the forms, or, you know, maybe I think there's an updated version of, like, some of these aesthetic ideas or ontological ideas, you know, there's a lot of it sort of dated, and, you know, that's kind of cool that he wrote all this stuff, but... The thing with difference with Socrates is he sort of almost, you know, apart from what Plato kind of associated him with, which he may or may not have believed, um, he's kind of just like a bit of a blank slate and a bit of more of an idea of how to engage with interlocutors and how to 
make a dialectic run. And I think that helps him become much more um, relatable simply because he is, you can put yourself into the idea of Socrates rather than a philosopher who had a very specific voice or a very specific character who brought a specific thing to the table. You may or may not strictly agree with everything that particular philosopher says. And often, many of the later philosophers really start to have a lot of broad thoughts on things, a lot of thinking that really starts to pollinate out into all aspects of philosophy and even sort of the proto-sciences, if you like, um, you know, when they were starting to study the world. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think, you know, that does definitely help with Socrates, yeah. Yeah, well, um, I think there's also this idea that he he he, he, he really lives his philosophy and, and something that's probably... I think when people tend to think of philosophy, and this is why I think he's good for, for basically getting other people into philosophy that maybe not be into philosophy, they might not know anything about it, um, they, because, because they might think it's this abstract thing. And obviously you've got the whole Socratic irony element where he's basically walking around, he sees what the pre-Socratics are doing, or at least that, that group of philosophers that were doing kind of the more rational, the more scientific stuff. And they're kind of doing all this proto-science and he's he basically just wants to say, you know, although all this all this thinking stuff is really hard. I'm just going to concentrate about virtue. I'm just going to do that, and um, he wants to cultivate a kind of craft. He wants to kind of believe something and live it, even if it's just the the belief that he has no beliefs or something. Um, but then, on on the other hand, it's kind of like I can see why how this idea is leaked into uh, philosophy in universities and stuff. This, this Socratic irony. Oh, science is really hard. I don't. Let's not think about that. Let's just yeah. let's just talk about moral questions. And I, I can see what I can just imagine somebody from like a STEM field reading Socrates and going, "Oh, this guy. This guy is responsible for why everybody hates science because you know <laughs> it's Socratic irony. It's not you're not meant to really believe that science is too hard to do. I, I, you know." I think Socrates also thinks he's he's fulfilling a a very particular role in society. I think that that's something that comes across. I think he, I don't think he expects everybody to live like him. I think he's he thinks he's he thinks he, he's he wants a, to try and better people or at least help them on the way to virtue or try to help himself and them on the way to figuring out what the good is, what the virtue is. That's, he want, he thinks he's a midwife in terms of t- teaching. He says I'm only a teacher insofar as um um a midwife delivers a baby is is teaching them i'm just i'm just <laughs> i'm just pushing you a little bit towards truth or whatever it's, it's almost like you know he's pushing them towards heuristics and he's, he's enabling them to teach themselves to um i guess in a way to to concern themselves with their own thoughts and criticize them um the structuring of thinking and that sort of thing i think the the appeal for Socrates as a philosopher is also somewhat niche. I think he's very much like the revolutionaries philosopher it's because he just challenges the status quo so much in the just the way he acts, the things he wants to say. There's nothing about him which kind of stays within the status quo. Most people who are into philosophy already kind of find the guy quite compelling, but then I think some of the other people who maybe are still into philosophy, but they're very much into uh more ideological stuff i think they kind of have a problem with socrates more so than some of the other people would um but i i just wanted to end my contributions uh with a quote from richard kraut which is probably one of my favorite quotes about socrates which is just that he remains for all of us 
a challenge to complacency and a model of integrity. Oh, wow. Yeah, just to end it, I think I'm going to say basically what his final words were. Basically, he's you know he's dying of hemlock. He's sort of being paralysed from the legs up, as Plato describes it. Um, and you know these are his final words. He just says, "Crito, we owe a rooster to Asclepius. Pay it without fail." And that's all he says. Basically, Asclepius is the Greek god of healing. Um, so what he's saying is basically because he thought that you know sort of death was a release or a cure for life in a way, and so he's sort of saying, "Well, I'm dead now, so we owe we owe a good old tribute to the old god of healing for finally giving me death." So he's just <laughs> like a little bit of a joke right at the end, and that's Socrates. <laughs>